Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for listening. Let's start out by talking about Watson, my cousin. We're not going to spend a lot of time on him because, frankly, he's kind of boring. His father was either an engineer or an architect. They traveled a fair amount. They traveled for work. They lived in Australia for a year or two. They lived in Germany for a while. This was all because of the father's business. There was one older brother, so Watson had an older brother, several years older, no other siblings. The mother apparently abandons the family. She gets tired of the father. He's a drunk. He has a hard time keeping a job. He's always blowing these golden opportunities to establish himself and move up the ladder in whatever firm he was employed by. They come back to England for several years. That's when Watson becomes very close to my great-great-grandfather, who was his first cousin. Then the father dies when Watson's in his late teens. The older brother is also an alcoholic. The father apparently dies of cirrhosis. The older brother is already drinking heavily in his early to mid-20s, and he mismanages the estate. Whatever money there had been is pretty much squandered. There's a little bit of money for Watson to educate himself. He talks about attending the University of London Medical School. He says he graduates in 1878. That's what he says in the official records. In fact, what happened was he followed his cousin, my great-great-grandfather, to America and was seriously thinking about living here permanently. He attended medical school in Philadelphia. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is, I guess, the oldest medical school in the country. And he's thinking about living here, and he's talking about even moving out to the West Coast and living in San Francisco and setting up a practice. And then some friend of the family notifies him in his last year at the medical school that the University of Edinburgh will be hiring a teaching assistant or several teaching assistants, postgraduates, people who have finished medical school and have some interest in becoming professors. And so because Watson never was really interested in having his own practice, he that never really appealed to him. He was always looking for a way out of being your regular old general practitioner he thinks this might be an interesting option. This might be something that he might actually like to do and remain in the medical profession. So he goes back to Britain and he's living in Edinburgh and he's working essentially as a teaching assistant or a grad student, graduate assistant. And that's where he meets Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle is seven years younger than Watson. So Watson at this point is 27, maybe 26 or 27. Doyle's 18 or 19. And they meet in this context. Watson is teaching Doyle in some capacity. They're both really into sports. And I know that they, at some point, are on the same rugby team. And I don't know whether it was a university team or not, but apparently they were both quite good athletes. So they have this bond. The problem is that Watson gets involved with a young married woman. Her husband is off in Egypt He's a banker, and he's off in Egypt for a few months. The bank has sent him there, and I don't know why she didn't accompany him, but this woman catches Watson's eye, and he pursues her. Now, Watson always thought of himself as a ladies' man, and he used to brag about how successful he was with women. And as I've already said, he was married either two or three times. He has that famous line about where he's talking about himself, and he brags that he has a wide experience with women over three continents against his own interests and the interests of this young woman, he gets involved with her. 
And somehow word gets back to this woman's father, who is a powerful figure in Edinburgh. He's connected to the politicians in the city, the mayor or whatever they had for a city government. And on top of that, he also has connections with the people that run the University of Edinburgh. So this young woman's father goes to the University of Edinburgh, tells them that Watson is having an affair with his daughter and demands that Watson be fired. The university had no choice. I don't think they hesitated. They called him in. They demanded that he resign. And he did. And he was lucky not to be sued. In those days, I think you could sue somebody who was interfering with your marriage, potentially breaking up your marriage. You could sue them for something I think called alienation of affections. It would have been a a disgrace, a scandal. It would have damaged his career, may have ruined his career if this all had become public. Plus, the husband probably could have gotten a big money judgment against him, which I'm not sure Watson ever would have been able to get out from under. So Watson actually comes out of this reasonably well, considering what could have happened to him. The problem is that he has no job, no money, and no references, no recommendations. And so he heads down to London. He sees his only option is to enlist in the army as an army doctor, and that's what he does. So we don't get the straight story in the official record. He's not going to tell us that he joined the army because he'd been chased out of Edinburgh for getting involved with somebody who was already married. But that is what happened. And in fact, the reason I know that is it comes up in a fragment of a story that I have in these records. Even though most of the records I have pertain to the Ripper case and the Bordens, There are a few fragments or snatches of other stories that are included. And I have this vignette that Watson had written having to do with a client named Violet Hunter. She was the client in the story, The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. She was a young woman. She was a governess. Holmes and Watson solve the mystery and basically save her. And Watson, I think, was enamored with this young woman. I think he found her quite attractive. And Watson was either already married or he wasn't yet ready to dabble in extramarital affairs again. Or he, For whatever reason, he didn't pursue her himself. But he describes her physically. He says she, her face was freckled like a plover's egg, like a bird's egg. And then he talks about her chestnut hair being rich and luxuriant. And he tries to set her up with Sherlock Holmes, and Holmes has no interest. So in this vignette that I'm talking about, they're having a conversation months later. Holmes and Watson are sitting by the fire. Why didn't you ever follow up on Violet Hunter? I think she liked you, and she had a lot going for her. And so Holmes says, unlike you, Watson, I am inaccessible to the charms of womankind. And then Watson says, but she was something special. I think you really made a mistake in not pursuing her. Holmes replies, I hardly need remind you of your Edinburgh indiscretions and your failure to avoid the attractions of a married woman. Your career with women is proof that emotions bear a cost which is hardly worth the price. And then Watson gets offended and says, that is most unworthy of you. And Holmes says, well, maybe... And then he's sitting there tossing his cigarette into the fire and kind of stretching languidly. And he says, no woman is safe from you and you are safe from no woman. Basically says, I would never want to be prey to those emotions. He says, I have no doubt that should I ever succumb to such emotions, meaning romantic feelings, they would acquire an ascendancy over my higher faculties. This is part of the way I find out about the Edinburgh scandal. 
It's also proof that the two of them would talk about relationships sometimes and that occasionally Watson would either ask Holmes why he's not involved with women or ask why he doesn't follow up on eligible women, although he would always get the same response. This leads me to talk a little bit about Holmes and his relationships with Watson. It looks like Holmes only had two important relationships in his adult life. One was with his brother Orville, and that didn't last very long for reasons I will explain. And the other was with Watson. One thing we know about Holmes is that he was not patient with people who were significantly less intelligent. So he often directs his scorn towards Watson. I don't think Watson was nearly as dumb as he's made out to be, and I I think I mentioned that in the last episode. But if I cast this as favorably as possible for Watson, I think even he would admit that they were considerably above him in terms of raw intelligence. They were so focused on their brain power and their intellects. We've talked about how Sherlock is afraid of being emotionally vulnerable and how he uses his intelligence as an excuse not to get involved with people. Also, how he keeps Watson at arm's length. He never is vulnerable with Watson emotionally. He always treats him not only as an intellectual inferior, but as somebody that needs to be criticized and guided. For instance, when Watson says, I'm going to marry Mary Morstan, Holmes says, really, I cannot congratulate you. These are guys that have lived together for like six or seven years. Watson is Holmes's only friend, and this is Holmes's reaction? Holmes goes, she's fine as far as women go. It's marriage I object to. So Holmes always had this relationship with Watson where he made it clear that Watson was greatly inferior to him intellectually, and also that Watson was more interested in the animal side of our natures, the carnal side, chasing women. And Holmes would be critical of that. Of course, this always comes back to Holmes not wanting to expose himself emotionally. What it really means to me is Holmes was only willing to have one type of friendship, and that was where he was completely in charge, where the other friend looked up to him, idolized him, did what he wanted, was available when Holmes needed him, essentially worshipped him. And that's what we have here. At least that's the way it comes across, not just in the official records, but in the notes themselves, it's clear that this was a case of Watson experiencing 50 years of hero worship. And Holmes loved it. But the most important aspect is this, I think, was the only type of friendship that not only that Holmes wanted, but I think that Holmes was capable of. If he didn't get this in a friendship, it it meant he would have had to be on equal terms. He could not have a friendship where he was on equal terms with somebody because that would, I think, inevitably make him vulnerable in some sense. And he couldn't tolerate that. You know, Watson sort of reminds me of a pet dog. He's loyal. Holmes knows that when he whistles or calls, the dog comes to him. Look at all the times in the official records where Holmes says to Watson, I need you. Can you drop everything and come to me? He does. He always does. There's a famous telegram that Holmes sends to Watson saying, come at once if not busy, if busy, come anyway. And that sums up the friendship. How many times do we see Holmes dropping everything to help Watson? I don't think there's a single instance in the records of Holmes dropping whatever he's doing, whatever he's in the middle of, and saying, sure, I'll help you out, Watson. It was such a one-sided friendship. It's about the most one-sided friendship I think I've ever seen. 
And the irony is that even though Holmes justified this by saying, essentially, I'm so much superior to Watson that this is the only way it can be, the irony is that it was kind of a self-fulfilling thing, that it was this like tight, emotional, intellectual, subconscious circle where Holmes would say, I'm smarter than you are, therefore you can't really be my friend because what I care about is intelligence, and that means I can't be close to you. And yet this was the only type of friendship that he would tolerate. He's not saying, oh, I'm afraid to be close to people. What he's saying is, oh, you're inferior to me. You're boring. You you can't stimulate me intellectually. That's why we're not really any closer than we are. But notice that he never seeks out more intelligent people to be friends with. And I think it's because he was insecure and he didn't ever want to be in a position where he wasn't the smartest guy and also where he might have to expose his insecurities or his shortcomings. So that also brings us to Doyle. What kind of relationship did Watson have with Holmes and Doyle and how did the three of them all get along? Watson is on this pension. He's disabled. He's been discharged from the military. He doesn't want to get back into private practice. He doesn't really have enough money to support himself comfortably. Holmes is struggling financially. His great uncle is still alive. He has not yet built up a lucrative private practice. Watson says to him, we can make some money. Let me write up your cases and see if I can get them published. At first, Holmes is resistant, but then reality sets in and Holmes realizes that they need the money. They need money somehow. And also, Watson says, this is a way to get your name out there. We can build up a practice partly through this free publicity. Now, Watson doesn't think he has the talent to get things published, and he knows that Doyle has started to make a name for himself as an author. Doyle is just beginning to get his short stories published. So Watson goes to him, meets up with him again at some kind of professional dinner. And Watson's talking about Holmes and how fascinating Holmes is. And Doyle says, you should write about it. And Watson says, I don't think I have the talent. Would you be interested? At that point in his career, Doyle would do almost anything to build up some momentum. He knows that if he can get enough material published and if he can reach a certain level of success, that he'll be able to dictate his terms with publishers. At that point, he's basically taking whatever he can get. Whatever the publishers are willing to pay him, he'll take it. So he agrees. He says, well, let's give it a try. Watson goes back to Holmes, and Holmes says, I'm willing to do it, but I have to have final say over which material you give, what material you give to Doyle. You can't just take any case you want and give it to Doyle. You have to run it by me, and I have to give you the okay. That's fine with Watson. Then Watson goes to Doyle, and Doyle says, well, we're going to have to do this in the form of a contract. And Doyle has had enough experience by now dealing with publishers to know how to take advantage of people. He's been taken advantage of already. He says to Watson and Holmes, here's the contract, take it or leave it. And the contract has two important components to it. One is that Doyle gets 50% of the profits. So essentially what happens is Doyle gets 50% of the royalties, or if it's a one-time payment, whatever it is from the publisher, whatever the income is, Doyle gets 50%, Holmes and Watson each get a quarter. But the other thing is that Doyle says, I have complete editorial control. Whatever I say is going to be the final draft, that's up to me. Nobody has the right to veto the way I'm portraying you guys. 
Holmes just wasn't interested enough in this business. He didn't realize the potential it had, and he didn't really care. He wasn't going to argue about it. And I don't think Watson entirely understood what this meant. But part of what it meant was that Doyle would be free to change things about the memoirs. He could take factual records from Watson and shape them however he wanted. One of the things he did was he made Watson look like an idiot. And so the question is, why? Let's just start with that. Why did he choose that? I mean, we know that in order to become a doctor, unless you're a complete quack, and I don't think Watson was... In order to become a doctor, even back in those days, you had to be pretty smart. Think about what you had to learn. There's just a lot to it. It's a challenging profession. I don't need to tell anybody that. That's clear. And it's also clear from reading the official records and also from reading these notes and the narrative that Watson was a fairly astute doctor. He didn't say, which side is the heart on? He was always able to come up pretty quickly with a diagnosis. So I think what happened was that Doyle, first of all, wanted to create this contrast for narrative effect and dramatic effect to have Holmes be extremely bright and then to accentuate the intelligence by making Watson look stupid. So that's part of it. And then part of it is Doyle pretty quickly starts to resent his role in all this. He doesn't want to be writing detective stories. He's really interested in doing historical fiction. And that was always his goal. And that was his love. He wrote other historical novels. I think his favorite one had to do with archers in the Hundred Years' War. I think it was called The White Company. So he resents having to write these stories. They're not what he wants to do. They're not entirely his creation. He wants complete creative control, but he's got to start with the material that they're giving him. He hates dealing with Holmes. He thinks Holmes is a prima donna and a phony and a snob. And unfortunately, he takes this out on Watson. So I think that's another reason that he makes Watson look like an idiot. He can't do that to Holmes for a number of reasons. One is that the whole attraction of these stories is Holmes's intelligence and how Holmes figures everything out. So he can't make Holmes look like an idiot. And the other thing is that Watson was willing to take it. He saw the nature of the relationship between Watson and Holmes. He saw how one-sided it was. And he realized that of the three of them, the one who had the least amount of talent, the one who was most dependent on making this work, who had the most at stake financially, emotionally, professionally, was Watson. So he felt that he could basically do what he wanted to Watson and Watson would never back out. I think that Doyle would have gladly killed off Holmes and left him dead if he could have swung it financially. The problem is that Doyle liked to spend money and his other work, although it was successful, didn't bring in the kind of money that the Holmes stories did. He would get approached every so often by publishers and he would quote them these exorbitant fees as the years went by. He'd quote them figures that he didn't expect that they would accept, and and they'd say, okay. He gets to the point where just for his American rights to the stories, he's getting $5,000 a short story. This is around the same time as the Lizzie Borden murders, and I've told you that you can multiply everything by 30. Imagine getting paid $150,000 for a 20-page story. That's what he was getting. Now, of course, he had to turn half of it over to Watson and Holmes, but it was still a lot of money. He's getting royalties. I think they were getting money from plays, Sherlock Holmes plays, very early on. 
One way that Watson was really useful in terms of keeping this going was that Doyle and Holmes didn't like talking to each other. So Watson did act as the intermediary, the go-between. And Watson did make a lot of effort and put a lot of time into trying to soothe everybody's egos, which was not easy. I'm going to say one last thing about Holmes and the way he treated Watson and his attitude towards women. You know, when we talk about their relationship, when we say Holmes is up on this pedestal and he's kind of looking down on Watson and he's saying, the only thing that really matters in life is to be smart. And I'm so much smarter than you are. And you're dabbling in these animal instincts of procreation and satisfying your animal urges. There's absolutely no humility. What he's not saying of course, is, wow, I wish I felt comfortable around women. I wish I was daring enough to put myself out there and see if I could make a relationship work. Of course not. But he goes beyond that. Like I said, he lectures Watson. And for instance, when he says, I cannot congratulate you. And it's like, it's like a Catholic priest who's never been married, never had a girlfriend, telling a married couple what marriage is all about. I mean, intellectually, maybe you can give good advice, but there's more to it than that. There's certain things in life I think you really need to experience yourself in order to understand that it's not just understanding something in your head. There's some kind of emotional knowledge that you gain, some kind of deeper, less definable wisdom that you can gain by going through something, whether it's a marriage or a divorce or the death of a family member or the birth of a child, whatever it is, having experienced it gives you a greater perspective and you're in a better position to give advice. But the complete lack of humility for Holmes to lecture Watson on what it means to be married or not be married is just amazing. So next episode, we're going to start talking about the Moriarty's, the three Moriarty brothers, and we will talk about Holmes's involvement in the Ripper case. We'll start talking about that. I hope you join me. I look forward to it. And until then, take care. Mm-hmm.